Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You have been so good to us. Some of us, Lord, however, are right in the midst, smack dab in the middle of a giant trial. And we're looking for your faithfulness. We're looking for what it is you're saying. We're trying to hear what it is you're talking to us about or how you're going to resolve this, or what we're going to learn through it. I pray a special a prayer for those who have gathered under difficult circumstances. And pray, Lord, that they would find unexpected blessing in the midst of it, as you give them answers and as you work behind the scenes, because you're behind all of the scenes we're involved in, working powerfully. We pray that we would see your hand. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear, and a heart to receive what we're going to learn about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, many, 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 many years ago, when I first came to know the Lord, um, right afterwards, I had a real desire for fellowship. I was living in the Bay Area of Northern California. All I had was a motorcycle and a backpack. It's all that I owned. But I wanted to go back down back home, see my family, see my friends, uh, get involved in growing in the Lord. So I took a long motorcycle trip from the Bay Area back down to Southern California. I especially couldn't wait to see my brother. I wanted him to hear this message. Now, I was very green. I was very wet behind the ears. I needed to grow in the Lord. I knew nothing except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And uh, that's a good thing, but it was a bad thing in another sense because I was there to give Him advice about His life, and I really didn't have much advice to give. Um, without going into all of that, the Lord was dealing with me early on about surrendering to Him. I, like so many other Christians that I have met since then, sort of saw Christianity as adding Jesus to my life. Here's my life. Here's my plans. It's all about my future. And in effect, Jesus Christ had become a spoke in my wheel. I soon discovered he didn't want to be a spoke in my wheel. He wanted to be the very hub of the wheel. That my life was to revolve and rotate around Him, His plan, His purpose. Not to have Him added to my life and Him revolving around my purpose. So after that long journey, I was sitting at my parents' house in my previous bedroom, and I was reading through the Bible that I own called Good News for Modern Man. It was the New Testament and in modern English, that's the translation. And I was reading through Matthew. That's the first book. I'm reading through Matthew. I come to chapter 5. I'm going through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember distinctly that particular version of the New Testament in the Beatitudes. 
And one of them put in that good news for modern man version went like this. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. And I stopped. I stopped because I knew I was busted. I was nailed to the wall. I read that and I went, "Uh uh-oh. Now, granted, I was only a week or two old in the Lord, but that particular text reached out and grabbed me. And I had to admit, my greatest desire in life was not to do what God requires, but now I wanted it to be. And that was a turning point for me. That was one of those threshold moments, and there would be many more after that, where God was trying to deal with me, Skip, I don't want to be a spoke in your wheel. I want to be the very hub. Are you willing to pray for and make your greatest desire to be what I require? And I remember that afternoon, that summer afternoon in July, very, very, very prominently in my mind. After that moment, I found this book. I still have it by Andrew Murray called Absolute Surrender. It's exactly what I needed to read. It's exactly what the Lord was dealing with me on. And in particular, something that jumped out at me, and I'll read it for you, is in that book by Andrew Murray, where he writes this, God wants us to be separate from the world. We are called to come out from the world that hates God, come out for God, and say, Lord, anything for thee. If you say that with prayer and speak that into God's ear, he will accept it and he will teach you what it means. I say again, God will bless you. You've been praying for blessing, but do remember there must be absolute surrender. Every tea table shows you that. Why is tea poured into that cup? Because it's empty and it's given up for the tea. But put ink or vinegar or wine into it, and will they pour tea into that vessel? And can God fill you? Can God bless you if you are not absolutely surrendered to him? He cannot. Let us believe that God has wonderful blessings for us if he will but stand up for God and say, even with a trembling will, yet with a believing heart, O God, I accept thy demands I am thine and all that I have. Absolute surrender is what my soul yields to thee by divine grace. Many people who have become Christians are Christians. They're saved by God's grace. And yet, they're still mastered by their own flesh. They're not mastered by God. They're still resisting God's will. They're still living as though God exists to please them rather than vice versa. I share all of that as an introduction to chapter 32 because we find that God will be, has been, and will be dealing with Jacob on this very issue. Chapter 32 is a turning point for a con man named Jacob. There's already been one turning point. And that was at Bethel. Remember Bethel, where he had that dream of God some 20 years earlier, of the angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder. And he woke up the next day and said, God's here. I didn't even know it. 
Well, now he's coming back, and the second turning point isn't Bethel, but Peniel. Peniel, which means the face of God, because of an incident that we're going to read in chapter 32, where God gets a hold of Jacob, in fact, wrestles him, in fact, cripples him. So that after that incident, he walks with a limp. And we'll see why. It's one of the best things that ever happened to Jacob. Do you know that the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens? He scourges or spanks every son, every child that comes to him. And you know what? I've learned to thank God for all of the spankings that my gracious, wonderful, loving, heavenly dad dishes out. I've needed every one of them. And I've learned from every one of them, as Jacob will learn here. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And tonight, I think we're going to see that in chapter 32. Now, for 20 years, Jacob has been outside the land of promise. The land of promise is Canaan. He's going to give it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their progeny, the 12 tribes and that nation. He's been outside of the land of promise for 20 years, but, mark this, he's been outside of the land of promise, but not outside of the hand of promise. God has been with him, as he said when he was leaving at Bethel. And now he is coming back into the land. Let me just remind you where he's at. He's up in a place called Gilead, and he's going to come down and cross over the Jabbok River, a tributary of the Jordan, and come back into the land that he left. He is between Laban, his uncle, and Esau, his brother, none of which he has a good relationship with. He's between Padan Aram, or what is ancient Iraq, that would be called Iraq in modern terms, Padan Aram in ancient terms, And he's coming on very difficult territory into the land of Canaan to meet his brother, whom he believes is out to kill him. Because after all, 20 years before this, his brother Esau said, as soon as the days of mourning for my father are over, I'm going to kill that brother of mine. That's what's in his mind. So that's why I said you could name this chapter between Iraq and a hard place. Iraq and a hard place. Between Two very, very difficult places. Now, he's in between two difficult places. He just left Laban. He's going to meet Esau. He's, as you'll see, very, very scared, frightened like a little child. He's between these two difficult places, and God has allowed him to be. Mark that as well. God has allowed him to be between two difficult places because he has some things to deal with. When I was a kid at Christmas time, we'd always have, uh, I remember my parents would bring out nuts. It was a Christmas tradition, but not like shelled nuts. They were nuts in the shells and a little nutcracker next to them. You had to crack them yourself. Oh, I loved that because it gave me something to do. I was like to be busy. So I'd crack the nuts. I discovered that some nuts were harder to crack than others. Some shells are just tough in the way the, the, um, the construction of them is, and the symmetry and the roundness, it takes more pressure to crack them. Some people, like those nuts, require more pressure. 
You know, some people learn easily. And some people do not. And I've discovered God has a class for each type of person, a special classroom. You think that Padanaram was the school of hard knocks. Um, what he's going to get here is also a very difficult situation for him, but he's going to discover that God goes before him. Chapter 32, verse 1. So Jacob went on his way. That's after the Laban incident, after saying goodbye to him. And the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means double camp. In other words, there's others in this campground, boys. We're not the only ones camping out here. The angels are. Now, it just says it as a matter of fact. You know, he passed from there and he went to there and the angels of God were there to meet him. Hey, Jacob, how you doing today? Good, angels. Great to see you. Now, we discovered back in chapter 28 that angels were there on Jacob's way out of the land and now Jacob's way into the land. They show up again. Why? I don't exactly know. It could be that It's showing us that this is a very special land, that the borders are guarded by God's angels. As God even said in Deuteronomy, the eyes, my eyes, are on this land, the land of Canaan, Israel, from the beginning of the year to the very end of it. Or it could be simply God's way of saying, I've been watching over you and directing and guiding you all of this time. You're going out and now you're coming in. It was assigned to him. Psalm 34 says, the angel of the Lord encamps, love that, encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. So here's the angels of God that are encamping around him as he's coming back in. In our modern era, angels have been popularized. They've become very popular in the last decade or two. But Almost overpopularized. They've gotten to the schmaltzy stage where people just see them as little decorations. Oh, do you like my angel collection? If you have an angel collection, please don't write me an email about this. <laughs> my mom used to collect angels. I read an article of some woman who had collected like 104,000 angels. She had to move doors and windows and she didn't have enough cabinet, so she added an extra room just for her dumb angel collection. (laughs) Whatever, whatever you're into. (laughs) And there's angel sightings. I've heard people say, yeah, the so-and-so was out on the freeway the other day and you, and they tell you this fanciful story. And angel sightings have got about as popular nowadays as Elvis sightings. I don't know if there's like an Elvis angel out there to combine the two. I don't know about that. But one woman who claims to be an angelologist said her guardian angel, I read this in an article, helped her to lose 150 pounds. So new diet plan, the angel plan. I guess you eat angel food cake for the... No, you couldn't do that. (laughs) Now I want you to think about something. It says... Angels met him. Do you know that perhaps you've met an angel before? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, no, no. If I had met an angel, I I would definitely 
uh, have realized it. You know, the, the wings and the, the white robe, the halo would have given it away. It says in the book of Hebrews, be careful how you entertain strangers or how you show hospitality to strangers and that you should do that because in so doing, the writer of Hebrews says, some have entertained angels unaware or without knowing, without realizing it. That person that you met, that one that you thought was a person, could have perhaps been an angel? Could it be? It says, be careful to show hospitality. Some have entertained angels unaware. Now here it plainly says that the angels met him. And so he called the name Double Camp, Mahanaim. Billy Graham calls them secret agents. The angels are God's secret agents. They do a few things, and I'll just sum it up for you. By the way, they're mentioned in 34 books of the Bible, 17 in the Old, 17 in the New. If you look up the word angel, in the Old Testament, I believe it's found 103 times. In the New Testament, I believe it's 165 times. 34 books of the Bible all together talk about angels. So they're very real. They are, if I were to give you a definition, non-corporeal, that is non-physical Spiritual beings, they're spiritual beings without physical form. However, it would seem that from time to time, God clothes them with some ability to share human form so as to interact with humans. Now, whenever they have a physical form and a human can see them, they're still magnificent because typically the first thing an angel says when they meet a human is, don't be afraid, fear not. Because I'm sure a person goes, (gasps) even at the amazing, dazzling appearance so oftentimes of these beings. They're God's secret agents. What do they do? Well, number one, they stand in his presence. They stand in his presence. Just like kings, queens, presidents have their own troops and entourage around them. There are angels like in Isaiah 6 or in Revelation 4 and 5 that are angels of God's presence that render worship, praise to God incessantly. So they stand in his presence. Second, they serve God's people. Hebrews 1 says they are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to those of us who inherit salvation. Angels play an active role in your life. I believe you have guardian angels. They minister, the Bible says, to those who inherit salvation. Now, some of us, by some of the things we do, the activities we do, be it skateboarding or maybe you do some radical skiing or snowboarding or or, or mountain bike jumping, you know, maybe you have, like, doubled up angels on you or, or, you know, some kind of massively strong, very attentive angels. But the truth is, all of us have interacted with them. We aren't aware of it, but God has dispatched them to minister to us who are heirs of salvation. Okay, so they met him. He called that name Mahanaim, double camp. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir. Now, Seir is down. If you go east of the uh, Jordan River and you go down in the deserts of Jordan, south of what is ancient Edom, towards Saudi Arabia, um, you're going to discover Seir. Mount Seir is where uh, Esau went. And he evidently had conquered the 
inhabitants of that land called the Horites and another group called the Hurrians. And he um, had become very successful. God had blessed him. And he has noticed the entourage he has coming. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my Lord, interesting choice of words, my Lord Esau, thus your servant, again, interesting choice of words, your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, hint, hint, hint. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. Now, Jacob is the one who initiates contact with his brother. Why? Well, remember how they had that falling out when Jacob stole his brother's blessing. Jacob knows there's going to be no peace between he and his brother unless he resolves the issue that he has left unresolved 20 years before, when he had to flee because he stole his brother's blessing. Now, I do find it interesting that he calls his brother my Lord Esau, because that's not how he thought about him 20 years before this. Where did he learn this buttering up approach? Where did he learn this kind of flattery? From Uncle Laban. 20 years of being with Laban. Laban knew how to pour it on. The first time he saw Jacob, he goes, Oh my, you're my own flesh and blood, sent to me by God. And all the time he's figuring out a way to connive and get him to work for him. And he does successfully. And then when he's about to leave, he says, Oh, you can't leave. Don't you know God, your God, our God, has blessed me because of you. I'll give you anything you want. He just knew how to butter up Jacob. Jacob learned quite well, was watching this quite attentively. And I think he's employing the same kind of characteristics uh, to flatter his brother because he doesn't want his brother to kill him. Then, verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau... And he is also coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. That's not what Jacob wanted to hear. He's thinking, oh man, am I toast. It's curtains for me. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Now watch how Jacob operates. He's going to divide his his people into two camps, and then more camps, four camps later on. And he's anticipating that his brother's going to attack and kill the first camp. Guess which camp he's going to be in, personally. Think he'll be in the first one? Oh no, he's going to be way in the back, using his children and wives as buffers for him. The little wuss. That's his approach. He's, he's figuring it all out. He's anticipating it all in his mind. Verse 9. 
Watch this. Then Jacob said, now he's going to pray. This is the first recorded or written. This is the first time we get to hear Jacob pray. I'm not saying it's the first time he prayed. He did pray before. But now it's recorded for us. So let's read through it and then we'll make comment on it. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you have said, I will surely treat you well, And make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. Jacob really isn't much different than we are, right? It seems that when our back is against the wall, when we're in a pinch, when there is adversity, then we go, oh God, we start praying. I find his prayer... Interestingly time, I'm glad he prayed. I don't want to knock him too much. But I also know it's part of human nature. We merrily go our way. I got it all under control. I got this covered. I'm a smart one, you know. I got it all figured out until we're out of options. We're at the end of our rope. We're between a rock and a hard place. And then we say, oh, God, we start praying. Because now we realize we need to depend on one greater than ourselves. The hymn writer put it well. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Everything. But he's afraid and in his fear and in distress, he begins to pray to the Lord. Could it be just a possibility that one of the reasons God allows or prescribes steady amounts of adversity in our lives is so that we'll always depend on him? There were three ministers having a theological discussion about the proper position for prayer. One of them said, I have discovered that the proper position for prayer is while seated with the hands folded and the thumbs pointing heavenward, indicating to whom I trust. The second reverend in the group said, I disagree wholeheartedly. I found the best position in prayer is to show humility and be on one's knees with your hands raised in the air to God. The third reverend said, well, I have to disagree with both of you chaps. I think if you really want to show humility, you have to get prostrate on the ground all the way down before God. Now, in the background, a telephone repairman was listening to these three theologians talk, and he finally interrupted and said, you know what I've discovered, fellas? The best position for prayer that I've ever been in is when I was dangling 40 feet above the ground on a telephone telephone pole by my heels. That was the most effective prayer I ever prayed. In other words, while in extremis, at the end of my rope... Or at the end of my pole in his situation. 
They are very effective. This was a very effective prayer. Now, notice something about it. I'm glad it's given to us. In verse 9, he recounts the past. I'm giving you a few of the elements of his prayer. He recounts the past. Notice he calls God by his covenant name, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He's putting God in the context of who he has been historically. I think that's healthy. When you pray, recognize to whom you're praying. Remember in Acts chapter 4, when the disciples were threatened by the leadership in Jerusalem? The church got together and the prayer went something like this. O God, O Lord God, you made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David, and he quotes Psalm 2, he put it into the context. I realize the one I'm talking to is the one who made everything. I realize the one I'm talking to is the same one who has fulfilled all of the promises to Abraham, all of the promises to my father Jacob. So he recounts the past. Number two, he recalls the promise. As if he's saying, look, Lord, the reason I'm here in this land, this new land, the reason I left Padanaram is because you told me I should come and you bless me for it. So here I am. I'm here because you told me to go. He's reminding God, not that you need to remind God, but really reminding himself in prayer before the Lord God's purpose. The third element is he realizes his own unworthiness. Did you notice that? Verse 10. Boy, Jacob's changing. I am not worthy, he says, of the least of all of the mercies and the truth which you have shown your servant. I'm not worthy. You're merciful, but I'm not worthy. In other words, he's acknowledging that he's a sinner, that he's falling short. Proverbs 28 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sin, that God would bless that person. will find mercy, it says in Proverbs 28. Find mercy. I'm not worthy, he said, of the least of your mercy. Finally, notice he requests deliverance. This is the heart of his prayer. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Now watch this. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with his children. He confesses something negative before the Lord. Please notice that. And notice that it's in his prayer. And the reason I bring it up is because some folks make such a big deal out of having a positive confession. Don't have a negative confession. Never utter a negative confession, but always a positive confession. So if you're sick, don't say, I'm sick. That's a negative confession. Because you'll get sick if you say, I'm sick. All of that nonsense. Listen, you know why he made a negative confession? Because he was honest. It's better to make a negative confession and be honest than to make a positive confession and be dishonest. Tell the Lord what you feel. If you feel it, tell him. Do you think God can't handle it? you think God will go, oh, I can't believe you said that? Doesn't the Bible say the Lord knows our frame and remembers that we are dust? Do you think God has high expectations for dust? 
I, I, I'm just so disappointed in my dust today. I'm afraid, God. I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to die. Several years ago, there was a man who came up to me after a service with crutches. He had a broken leg. I had heard that he broke his leg. And I said to him, I'm so sorry that you broke your leg. I'd like to pray for you. And he goes, don't bother. It's not broken. I said, excuse me? Not broken. I'm believing and standing on faith. Now, he's saying this while he's on crutches, hobbling, telling me he doesn't have a broken leg. And he says, because God has healed me. I said, are you sure about that? Yes, I'm sure. Don't give me a negative confession. I said, well, then do me a favor, would you? Don't tell any unbelievers that God has healed you while you're on crutches. They're all going to think God does a lousy job of healing people. If you call that a healing. Lord, I'm afraid. I know it's coming. And he was honest before God. For you said, verse 12, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Now, I love this. God did tell him that. He's thinking things out loud. He's processing things out loud. I'm afraid for my life, yet at the same time, how can I die if you said I'm going to have a lot of kids? And how can these children die if you made these promises? We have to live for this thing to be fulfilled. And so he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Now watch this present. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of a servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, whose are these in front of you, then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. Behold, he is behind us. (laughs) Behind us. They're the human shields. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. 580 animals was the gift. It proves that Jacob had gotten very wealthy while he was in Padanaram. God had been very good to him because this is a sizable gift. This is a huge flock in and of itself that he's giving. So what is he doing? He's softening the blow. He's trying to buy him off, give him present after present after present, successive waves of gift after gift after gift. So finally he would think if he's angry, how can I kill this guy? He's so nice to me. That's what all this is about, softening him up. Okay, go back to his prayer. You don't have to go back to it 
read it, but you can if you want, but I mean, think in your mind of his prayer. When he prayed and asked God for deliverance, did he really believe God was going to deliver him? Well, evidently it wasn't that strong of a prayer, or it didn't have that much faith. He did say, look, Lord, you said this, and I'm going to put my trust in you, but... You know, with all of this wrangling afterwards, it would seem that though he prayed, it wasn't very much faith involved. And can I just say, I relate to that. I relate to that. You remember the man who came to Jesus and Jesus said, do you believe anything's possible to those who believe? And he said, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. You ever feel that way sometimes? Yeah, Lord, I trust you, but you know, there's just this part of me. Help my unbelief. That's how he comes. It's so typical. It's so typical of us. How often do we unload our burden in prayer before the Lord and then no sooner did we unload it, but we pick it back up, nicely place it on our little back and march out of God's presence. God, um, you doing anything with that little burden I gave you? Do you mind if I have it back just for a while? It seems we do that. It seems that Jacob did that. Let's see what happens. Verse 22, And he arose that night, took his two wives, two female servants, his eleven sons, he had daughters too, but the eleven sons are mentioned, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. Let me just help you place Jabbok. Um, In between the Sea of Galilee up north, and the Dead Sea down south. The Jordan River connects both of those bodies of water. Right in between, about midway, is the Jabbok River, about 22 miles. It flows from the east, northeast, and joins and flows into the Jordan River. Very, very steep and precipitous. That's why the Jabbok was the ancient boundary between North Gilead and South Gilead, or Og and Bashan before that. It was a natural barrier, natural border. He crossed that that night, the Jabbok River. He took them, verse 23, sent them over the brook, sent over what he had, and then Jacob was left alone. So often God wants to get us alone, quiet, no one around. And then he'll speak to us. Now, he's going to speak very dramatically. Jacob was left alone. And a man, notice that, and notice that if your Bible is my version, it's capitalized, is it not? Okay. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. It's the first wrestling match in history. Um, you remember the show some years ago, Touched by an Angel? This is the first episode. But it was called Punched by an Angel. Jacob was assaulted by this man. Now, it's funny. I've read a lot of different commentaries, a lot of different books, and seen this as an example. And typically, how how commentators and pastors love to deal with this passage is, here's Jacob wrestling with God in prayer. 
That's how it's often taken. Jacob isn't wrestling with God. The man assaulted him, wrestled with him. It's not that Jacob saw him and goes, I'm going to pick me a fight. That's God. I'm going to wrestle and get something out of him. It's God, through this him, this man, wrestling Jacob to bring him to an end of himself and cause him to surrender. So this wrestling match goes on, and i got to give it to Jacob, on and on through the night now, probably. I'm just figure, I'm figuring this, but I believe it happened. I think he sent his wives and, and, and everybody over the river and said, I'll, I'll join you. I, I, I'm just going to spend the night here. Why? I'm thinking, he's, he's thinking, I just need one night's good sleep. I'd been with Laban and, and had to confrontation with him, and I, I didn't have a good night's sleep with him, and now that's gone. And I'm about to see Esau, and, you know, if I could just get alone with my thoughts and just get one good night's sleep. Well, he didn't get one good night's sleep. Middle of the night, he's attacked. As it says, he was left alone, and a man wrestled with him to the breaking of day. What is happening as we'll see, I believe, is God is cracking the nut. The hard shell of Jacob. <laughs> till he finally just clings to the Lord toward the end of this. I, uh, I distinctly remember witnessing to a gal named Linda at a hospital I worked at years ago in California. And every time I would witness to her and share something with her day after day, she would always have some little smart remark or she would do a little bit of research to try to prove me wrong and prove the Bible wrong. And day after day, I'd keep sharing with her and I'd answer her questions and share a little bit more and answer the next question. And eventually, I could see her starting to crack. Till one night, in desperation, out in the parking lot at the hospital, she just lashed out at me. And I said, Linda, you're fighting God. He's got you pinned up against the wall. Just give it up. Just throw in the towel. Just quit fighting him. Surrender to him tonight and watch what happens. She just broke down in tears and cried. And four or five minutes later, she prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Threw up the white flag. I surrender. And that's what Jacob is doing, I believe, in this passage. When he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Interesting, that's exactly what he asked his father for 20 years earlier. Now he's asking this man for a blessing. That's what he should have done 20 years before. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, heel catcher. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, or Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, who is this person? He's called a man here. Hosea chapter 12 calls him an angel of the Lord. But it goes on to say that God Almighty met with Jacob. Now, because of that, Hosea chapter 12, along with what we just read, most Christian scholars believe, and even one Hebrew Old Testament scholar that I found, believe that this is some physical apparition of God in the Old Testament. 
And most scholars believe it's called a Christophany, or if you will, a theophany, the appearance of Christ in a pre-incarnate form in the Old Testament. Or, if you prefer, the, not and, the angel of the Lord, much like Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord appeared to Abraham with two other angels. Those two angels went on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham stood before the Lord, he is called. The appearance of a man on a mission, thus the term messenger or angel, same thing. But some believe it is the Lord himself that he was fighting with. Now, it's really not a wrestling match. I don't want you to get this idea that, you know, gosh, they're, you know, who's going to win this? There's Jacob fighting this man. Ooh, Jacob got a really good grip on him. What's going to happen? It wasn't that at all. As soon as this man wanted to end it, he just touched, didn't even hit, just touched Jacob's hip and bam, bam. He's incapacitated. Question, why did he touch his hip? So he couldn't run. That's what he was used to doing his whole life, running. When he stole the blessing 20 years before from his brother, what did he do? He ran away. When he was with Laban and he wanted to leave, how did he do it? He ran away. And he's probably thinking, I can just run away. Touched his hip. Incapacitated. He can't run. Now he's clinging to the Lord at this point. He's saying, verse 26, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's asking this man, the Lord, to bless him, clinging to him. God's turning him from a conniver to a clinger, from a wrestler to a rester. As Corey Ten Boom used to say, stop wrestling and start nestling. He's just abiding in the Lord. Verse 28, I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. Your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. And this is why. For I have seen God face to face And my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel did not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. What does the word Israel mean? Some scholars translate it, God strives, or God fights, or God rules. I think the best idea of the change is one who fights victoriously with God. That's the idea. Jacob, you've been fighting God and man your whole life. I'm changing your name because I'm changing you into somebody who fights victoriously with God. No longer against God, no longer even for God, but with God. Israel, one who fights victoriously with God. Verse 32 gives us a little footnote. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, 
because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. According to scribal law called the halakha, it is the kosher thing to pull out the tendon and the sciatic nerve of this area and throw it away and uh, discard it and not eat it uh, because, because of this. Jacob, because of this, comes to an end of himself. And the real secret of your strength, if you want to know what is the secret of Christian strength, you don't want to know what it is? The real secret? Admitting your weakness. It's not look in the mirror, smile, tell, tell you look confident, so you can go out and go out and say, hi, and have that confidence about you. The secret of great spiritual strength is to admit I'm weak. You go, Skip, uh, that doesn't make sense. That's counterintuitive. But it's what Paul learned. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 said, you know, I got this weird thing. He called it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Three times I asked the Lord to deliver me from it. And all that God said to him was, my grace is enough for you, sufficient. He said, I asked the Lord three times to deliver me from the thorn in the flesh. And God just kept saying, my grace is enough for you. My strength, God said, is made perfect when you're weak. So then Paul continues and he says, most gladly then, I will boast in my weakness and my infirmity. I will take pleasure in my weakness and my infirmity. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. How does that work? How how could it be that when you're weak, you're strong? Because when you're weak, you recognize you're weak and you depend and lean upon him and he gives you strength beyond yourself. That's why it's the secret of strength. I'm calling you Israel, one who fights victoriously with God, not one who trips somebody up, catching their heel, manipulating them, conning them. It indicated God had a change in store. Now, we have just nine minutes, which is plenty of time to finish chapter 33. Trust me, we're just going to go through it because it's the payoff. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. There was Esau coming, and with him 400 men. He swallowed hard. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front. Yeah. Yeah. Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last, because those are his prized possessions. That's the woman he loved, and the only son by him. And he crossed over before them, and bowed himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother, just bowing a little closer, bowing a little bit closer, bowing a little bit closer, bowing, that's four, a little bit closer, bowing five. You get the picture, seven times. But watch this. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. You know what this tells me? It wasn't Jacob's plan that worked. It was Jacob's prayer that worked. He prayed, oh God, I'm going to die. Would you please help me? Okay. Now, let me figure this out here. I got to plan this. Four companies, maybe five companies. Animals, presents, yeah. God had already gotten it all handled, changed Esau's heart. Let me tell you a quick little story. 
It comes to us by Flavius Josephus, the historian. You've heard of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the world so quickly that he even surprised himself. He made it all the way to the Indus River, and there he wept like a baby because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. He was such a swift, apt warrior. When Alexander the Great, on his journeys eastward, came to Tyre, the city of Tyre up in modern-day Lebanon, to overtake it, and he surrounded the city, and he eventually knew that he had to take Tyre, he sent troops down to Jerusalem to get an alliance from the Jews in Jerusalem to get food, supplies, and help to conquer Tyre. He was met by a guy named Jadua, the high priest, who said, I'm sorry we can't help you because we have signed an agreement with your archenemy Darius, the Persian. So the message went back to Alexander the Great. Alexander now marches against Jerusalem. And everybody thinks the Jews are dead. Jerusalem's toast is going to be destroyed. When he comes outside of Jerusalem, Jadua the high priest marches out to meet Alexander the Great. This is 332 B.C., according to Josephus. Opens the scrolls of the Old Testament and shows Alexander the Great where he is predicted by the prophet Daniel to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire and the world swiftly. He shows them the prophecy about himself in the scripture. And they have a meeting, the high priest and Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dismounts from off his horse and bows down to the ground in front of the high priest, the Jewish high priest. Alexander, second in command, is like baffled, thinking, ah, why aren't you going to kill these people? And he says, because before I even made my journey to the east, while I was still in Macedonia, I had a dream at night that I would meet a man dressed in the garb of a high priest who would predict to me that I would rule the world. And so he comes there and he meets a man of God who shows him the scripture and he sees this as the fulfillment of a already given dream and he spares the city. In other words, God had it all in control before Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem. In a very similar manner, God had it all handled. God handled Esau way before Jacob's psalm. So Jacob's going, oh no, oh no, oh no. And Esau just weeps and embraces him and loves on him. It's amazing. And they wept. He lifted up his eyes, saw the women, the children, and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maid servants came near, and their children bowed, and Leah also came near with her children and bowed down. Afterward, Joseph, Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all of this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now, do you notice the language between these two? Jacob is calling him my Lord, and I'm your servant. And here's Esau. There's, there's nothing between them. He just called, hey, look, you're my brother, man. We're brothers. Enough of this stuff. 
And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God. Oh, please. And you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. And Esau said, Let us take our journey. Let us go. I will go before you. But Jacob said, My Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds are nursing with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly, but at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. Now, a footnote. There's never a record that Jacob went to meet Esau in Seir. Now, he may have, but there's no record that he did. It would seem like he says, no, go on and I'll go and I'll visit you. You know, don't call me, I'll call you. We'll get to, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do lunch. Never saw him after that. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and made himself a house and made booths. That's what Sukkot means, by the way. There's a feast called that. We'll get to it later. And made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place was called Sukkot. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And he came to, from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before that city. And he bought the parcel of land which he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Notice he bought a house. Up to this point, he was living in a tent. He was a Bedouin, moving around from place to place. The fact that he's buying land and making a permanent shelter shows that he's settling down finally. I remember a conversation my mom had with me. I was taking a three-month vacation around the United States, driving in my truck years ago. I remember the last words my mom said to me. She goes, I just hope you find a place and settle down. Finally, Jacob is settling down in the land that he's going back to. Now, notice it's called Shechem. Fast forward to John chapter 4, the woman at the well of Samaria. This is the place. And remember what Jesus said to her? If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. And she looks at him and says, what, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? This is that place that she will be living at in the area of Samaria later on. Verse 20 ends it just on time. And he erected an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel, the God, the God of Israel. Leighton Ford, who worked with Dr. Billy Graham, used to say, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. God loved Jacob way too much to leave him Jacob. He wanted to change him. And to change him, he had to sort of chase him and get him in between these two rocky, tough places and add pressure to his life. Maybe you are discovering that. Maybe tonight you're saying, boy, I'm feeling really beat up and I'm afflicted. Okay, then look at it as, God, you have my attention. Because David wrote, 
Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119. Could it be that you're resisting something that God is trying to do in your life? Don't know, but just ask him. Like like the book, Absolute Surrender. Ask him sincerely. Lord, I sincerely surrender all to you tonight. I don't want to resist. I want to cooperate with you. I want to fight with you. I want to go where you're going. Instead of saying, Lord, here's my plans. Bless me and bless my plans. Why not say, Lord, what are your plans? What are you doing? How can I be on board and be a part of that? That is the most exciting way to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we take this moment, we sit before you, arms outstretched, a heart open to you, and we ask, Lord, with with every bit that is in us, Would you take us? Would you take all of us? We surrender tonight to you, Lord, absolutely, totally. We want to be empty vessels like an empty teacup that you can fill with your spirit. And we can know your purpose. And we can represent you in this city, in our neighborhoods, in this world. So, Lord, would you take us these weak, very similar to Jacob vessels? Would you work on us? And then would you use us? Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, and the angels of God that encamp around us. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your promises. And thank you for this story. As Paul said, it was written for our admonition. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.